name is not Dr. Google. I'm Dr. V. I want you to be healthy and happy, so we're going to talk about all the things I can't fit into a 15-minute appointment. Let's get started. Step into my office. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Office Visits with Dr. V. Please, please, please don't forget to subscribe, leave a great review, and even share it with a friend. The more you do that, the more visible that this podcast becomes and the more women that can get all of this great information that we're sharing. You can also follow me on Office Visits with Dr. V on Instagram and Facebook. So guys, I'm so excited today about this episode. This is episode number nine. This episode really should be called Office Visits with Our Pediatricians. The title is Conversations with Our Daughters. I have brought in three guests to answer the questions that my patients ask me about their daughters. Y'all know I'm an OBGYN, but I don't work with children all the time. So I have brought in three wonderful, intelligent, talented women to answer all of our questions. So first off, I have worked with them professionally, and I know all three of them personally. They're great, great women. I know their character. They not have only taken care of my patients, but they've also taken care of all of my children. And Dr. Tanuzi has even taken care of my husband. So a few things that they have in common. All three of my guests work at Wake Forest Pediatrics in High Point, North Carolina. All three of them are married with children. Two have two children, one has three. And if you go on their website, all three of them are highly rated. On a scale of one to five, the minimum rating for all of them is 4.8 or greater. So thank you all for having us. I'd first like to introduce our first guest is Dr. Tasha Dial. Hi. She is a medical doctor and she has been practicing for 15 years. She went to Xavier University undergrad, and she did her residency at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Thank you, Dr. Dial. Thank you for having me. Next, we have Kirsten Goolsby. She is a physician's assistant. She likes to be simply called Kirsten. She did her PA training at Wake Forest University here in North Carolina, and she has been practicing in pediatrics for her entire 12-year career. Thank you for being here, Kirsten. And lastly, but not least, we have Dr. Raquel Tanuzi. She's a medical doctor specializing in internal medicine and pediatrics, and she has been practicing for over 18 years. She did her undergraduate at Cornell University and then her medical school at the State University of New York at Buffalo School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. That's a lot. It is. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Dr. Tanuzi. Thank you again for having me. So I just want to get started. I just have a list of questions that I am commonly asked uh, from my patients, and I cannot wait for you to share the answers with our audience. So first, we're going to start with you, Dr. Dow. And if I'm being honest, this one is really personal. How should we discuss puberty with our daughters? Well, I feel like it's really important to discuss puberty at an early age. Um, I usually start um, discussing it with my patients, usually around eight or nine. Um, African-Americans um, typically show signs of puberty earlier than Caucasian patients. And so usually around eight, I start talking about the changes in their body, 
um, and just kind of talking about it in a general sense so that they feel comfortable sharing with their parents when they notice changes in their bodies. Because the girls tend to notice it first um, mm -hmm. and they have to feel comfortable talking about it. Um, and I just kind of show them that it's just a way, a way for their body to prepare to become a young lady. Um, it's not something scary because they're a lot of times really nervous and scared about it. Um, and a lot of parents really don't know what to say to their children about puberty. And uh, it's not something that we talked about in, when I was growing up. But I usually start <laughs> early and just kind of talk about the changes in their body in stages. Um, I give them a couple books um, that to, to read. There's some in girls and boys that um, are very helpful. So I think talking early is helpful. So th this question is from me. What <laughs> books do you recommend? Are there any books that you think do a better job of helping the parents? Or? There, there's one that's pretty broad. It's called The Care and Keeping of You, and it's an American Girl book. And they also have a boy um, version. There's a one and a two. So the first one talks about early stages of puberty. The second one talks about after menses. But it's really well written um, and really easy for parents and kids to read together. Okay. Kirsten, this one probably is... This one probably is, is really probably more common than that one. What do you think about birth control in young girls? So birth control for me and young girls um, is a little bit of my passion. I'm one of the providers at the office who does it the most. And the first thing that I have to say whenever I go into the room quite often um, is actually about talking mom down off the ledge or the parent down <laughs> off the ledge. Because a lot of people think birth control equals sex. Right. And that's not the right. case at all. Um, I often say to them out loud, I like for you to think of it as birth control pills have, uh, or birth control in general, has two medical uses. Probably a couple more, but mainly two categories. And, of course, the first one is to prevent pregnancy. And secondly, though, it is to take control of our periods, take control of our menstrual cycles for the better quality of life. Your cycle for some girls can be quite horrendous. We have young girls coming in. As Tasha said, as early as eight, um, they'll come in. They're having a period every two weeks. Mm. These periods are heavy for at least seven days. And heavy, prolonged periods frequently, of course, can lead to anemia, iron deficiency, and right. in extreme cases, blood transfusion. Um, so your period can get you in the ER. Right. And so if there is something that you can do to help your daughter improve her quality of life, reduce any risk of embarrassment. You know, none of us want mm. to be the girl who has to get up in the middle of class with her pants ruined. Um, Amen. Trying to figure out how to get help <laughs> and what to do. And one of the things that you can do um, is starting some type of birth control. Um, there are lots of different choices. I typically recommend starting with the pill because I like to tell them if anything goes wrong, all we have to do is stop it. Right, and then okay. after they've responded normally to three to six months on an oral contraceptive on the birth control pill, then I tell them at times you might want to explore other options, like something that can be implanted, um, which my colleague, which Raquel has told us, the AAP actually has recommended Nexplanon, which is the insert in the arm, down to as young as 12, right? can't remember exactly. Maybe Benita. But one of the first ones to start with versus the pill. But I always tell them, let's start with something that if you're vomiting profusely and, you know, bleeding very heavily, we can just turn it off. We can just stop it. Right. Once you get that depo shot, it's in there for at least three, three months. months. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is going to lead into another question, because for women, 
They will bleed heavily. Mm -hmm. They'll have pain. They'll be getting up in the middle of the night. Sure. And not seeking help. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for the listeners who have daughters, Mm -hmm. just spell it out for us. What are some of the things that if their daughters are experiencing this, that they should then talk with their pediatrician? So reasons to make an appointment based on your daughter's menstrual cycle or menstrual period, or even for yourself, um, moms. Um, period, remember, periods can lead to anemia, iron deficiency. So if you're bleeding more frequently than every 21 days, so if your period comes on every two weeks and that happens um, month after month after month, you need to come in. Um, prolonged heavy bleeding, bleeding, even if your period is within a normal time frame, so that 28 to 45 days, but you're bleeding for 10 to or 12 days at a time, you need to come in. Um, and if you're in general, the girls may be able to relate a little bit more to saying I'm having to change my pad or tampon very frequently, which means every hour or more than once between every two hours. Some girls will come in saying they're using tampons and pads and bleeding right through them. Wow. That girl needs to come in. At what age, though? Are we like? I have a 10 year old right now. Oh, my God. Every two weeks, seven days of heavy bleeding. Um, iron is quickly dropping. We're supplementing and, um, you really have to get a hold on this. They cannot go on month after month. Absolutely. Like absolutely. My daughter's 10. So that's what fourth or fifth grade Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. imagine. I've also had some patients who have severe cramps and they're missing school and they're, you know, they're really uncomfortable, which is important. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the, the painful periods are also, um, pretty common at that age. And even the, um, also vomiting. We will have girls coming right. in saying that they're vomiting for the first two days of their cycle. So many of these things can be completely turned off or at least, you know, stifled quite well to a point that they're able to get through day to day. So just to reiterate, please bring your daughter to her doctor. Yes. If she's missing school, if she's throwing up and if they tell you to put her on a birth control pill, what does she say? Birth control pills do not equal sex. She is suffering, which is why I don't even call them birth control pills. Sometimes I just say pills to regulate your cycle or hormonal mm-hmm. pills. That's I think good. they receive it a little bit differently than you say birth control. They yeah. they don't like that term, and it really does think they think sex. Okay, and ten, say that again. So I usually don't call them birth control pills. I usually say we're going to put your child on maybe some hormonal pills to regulate their cycle or I just don't even say birth control pills just because they really don't like to hear that word. And they don't seek help for that reason. So I usually just call them hormonal pills to regulate your cycle, Um, which is not a lie. It's just changing the Mm -hmm. narrative and the connotation Mm -hmm. um, and the stigma that young parents and your parents have with putting young children on birth control pills. I mean, it's hard to imagine your 11 year old, your 10 year old taking a birth control pill. Right. So exactly. I think changing the the way you say it and the way you present it is very important for parents when they're dealing with young kids who are having menstrual issues. Yeah, some 10-year-olds, I definitely, I won't say birth control pill because they won't even know what that is. <laughs> so I'll say you are now starting your home, hormone vitamin so that you can get through Ooh. your periods a lot better. Hormone vitamin. Yeah, and they, honestly, they may not find out until they were like 14 or 15 that you were actually on <laughs> a birth control pill. <laughs> Oh, aren't they good, y'all? This is such good information. Such So we're doing hormone vitamins and pills <laughs> to control your menstrual cycles. I, you're right. I think parents can receive that better. 
Um, Kirsten, you mentioned about nobody wants to be that girl that had an accident. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there are lots of things that kids are facing nowadays in school that can make them self-conscious. So I wanted to talk about a it's a big issue, obviously, for adults, but we often forget about children and their mental health issues, specifically in the pandemic. So we're recording this in January of 2021 and we are still in the pandemic. Um, but I want want you to tell us a little bit, Dr. Tanuzi, how can we recognize mental health problems in our children? And are there any unique signs specific to girls? Sure. Well, thank you again. Um, just sort of picking up where Kirsten, um, you know, stopped, I would say that the biggest thing about recognizing mental health issues is to first make sure as a parent, you can be receptive to these signs. So that's where I feel our jobs are extremely important um, because as Kirsten just mentioned, even just saying birth control pills and the parents already upset, sometimes there is still unfortunately a very big stigma about mental health issues. It's not a broken bone. We can put a cast on it. It's not a cut. It's not something we can stitch up. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for a lot of times, I know when I was growing up and we were kind of talking about this too, you were told, you know, we're told put your big britches on and get over it. So the Mm -hmm. first, I think we're our job and certainly yours too, because you're talking to parents who are about to become parents at time and who are parents is to kind of bring this conversation up as early as possible. So some of the signs of mood might be as subtle as withdrawing, kind of acting out of character. Um, Grades might be dropping, loss of energy and fatigue. Like they, we've checked them. They've come in. We can't really figure out why are they tired? Um, your child might try to approach you and be talking about a topic that you may feel like, what is this about? They may start with, can you look at this video Um, or something like that? So sometimes a lot of children nowadays with social media are using that as a cue to get the parent involved. But if you're a busy parent, which all of us at this table are, and you're like, why do you want to show me this video on this? I don't have time. That might have been your window. Oh, wow. Um, So that that definitely can happen. Um, loss or interest in the things they used to like to do. That's another big thing. So they like to watch TikTok all the time. All of a sudden, they're like, I don't need my phone even. Um, mm-hmm. They're not even talking to their friends or something like that. Um, some of the ones that certainly, unfortunately, get attention more quickly are the more the self-harm sort of things, cutting. Um, right. And that's a behavior where it can be pinching the skin hard it can be tugging on themselves hard. It doesn't necessarily have to be making sort of superficial scratch marks on the body somewhere. Some will leave them open to see and some will not. So like I said, I think the very most important thing is making sure as a parent or that teacher for all the teachers out there, you may be the first Mm -hmm. one to open that door in that conversation. And I would say just make sure that if a child approaches you, which is already hard, that you are willing to listen. Um, So I think those are really important. On the office side, when a child comes in starting even at six years old, we have screens that actually start to look a little bit about emotions. Wait a minute, hold on one second. A six-year-old can be depressed? (laughs) Absolutely. Definitely, and and especially, and if we get a chance and we can talk about that a little bit more, (laughs) in this whole era of this pandemic, as we're speaking here now in January of 2021, Absolutely. Um, Because people are being closed off or isolated from their friends or just being around other children. 
So we can see depression this young. We can definitely see anxiety this young. Um, and I definitely want to leave enough time to talk about maybe a few of the parameters that are more common or to girls, which is kind of the statistics of some of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But then as they get older, there's another form, which all the adults might know, or this is the formal name for it. It's basically just a patient health questionnaire, and it's a depression screen. So we have those tools in the pediatrician office, too, that we can utilize to kind of get at that when it's hard to put it into words. So now something I hear a lot of is that the moms and daughters are kind of butting heads. And so part of puberty is that their moods are changing. So, you know, you can have a sweet little precious daughter and then she kind of morphs into something different. So how can you tease out the mood changes of puberty versus the mood changes of depression or mental illness? Benita, that's an excellent question. Um, because I have a, I have a teen daughter. Um, oh, personal experience. That's what I'm talking about. So I would say probably one of the most important lessons I have learned, and if this helps other moms out there, um, some of us didn't sometimes grow up. I didn't, my mom passed when I was younger. I grew up with my grandmother. I had strong women around me, but there is something very unique to a mother-daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. I've had wonderful friends um, around me um, who I work with every day who have kind of helped guide me like, no, that's kind of normal. So sometimes checking in with like a good girlfriend or friend mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is important. We grew up in the authoritative parenting's age. I said so. That's it. That's it. There's no <laughs> further discussion. I think that biggest one word communication. Sometimes we got to let go again of our own barriers of what might be saying, why is she acting all high and mighty and think, wow, we just went through a summer in 2020 of outlandish brutality to black men, black people, people of color. Um, maybe this is the only way they have to get this out. So mm-hmm. we have to maintain those borders of respect, absolutely. But I think saying, all right, I'm going to give you five minutes. Sometimes what I tell parents and, and teens to do is give a time frame to allow for cool down. And we're both going to walk away. But you set a time, 10, 15, 30 minutes. And we're going to come and talk about that again. So one of the things is to give a little bit of space and grace to your teenager, your teenage girl. Space and grace. A little space and grace. (laughs) And what I found was, even in my own house, I can say, is a lot more peace because Mm -hmm. I was feeling slighted so much and so disrespected, but I realized five minutes later, my child was like, hey, what's up? So, (laughs) you know, so it's just, it's just a different whole world for them. They just have so much, I call it background noise from social media and everything in their ear. So, that's one of my tactics is opening up the conversation. Sometimes the parents are afraid what they're going to hear. Right. So, again, mm-hmm. I think that right. comes back to making sure what are your filters, what are your obstacles before um, kind of just shutting your child down. Right. We taught them to stand up for themselves. So now we're telling them, then we're giving another message. But we have to teach them how to articulate that respectfully, um, but certainly be able to pick up like they're crying out for help. Hmm. absolutely well we definitely don't want to miss those signs no especially it's kind of chilling when you say that may be your only window uh, and to think that you miss it and then the consequences are pretty great one thing you also said is that even you the pediatrician have to touch base with your your co-workers your colleagues absolutely and I'm an OBGYN and I've got a daughter and I got to talk to all of y'all so you know 
folks, when you're listening, understand that nobody has all the answers and that, you know, there is a community, there's a village that can all help us take care of our children um, and do what, what might be best for our children. Very, very interesting. That's, that's fascinating. All right, next question. So this is a big one. Uh, this is actually something that I recommend for my patients. But what do you think about the HPV vaccine? And do you recommend it for young girls? We absolutely recommend the HPV vaccine. Um, The misconception, I think a lot of parents think, is this is a brand new vaccine and we're seeing all these commercials on it. And why are you recommending it? And it's, you know, HPV is a virus that's um, transmitted through sexual contact. And Mm -hmm. my kid is nine. And that is not what we need to talk about. Um, But I try to tell them all the vaccines that we have are for prevention. You give the measles vaccine before you get exposed to measles to prevent it. So um, the reason we start talking about it between 9 and 11 is because you want to give the vaccine in enough time so that your body can mount an immune response. And that's when we're talking about puberty and other things that are very important. So we definitely recommend it for boys and girls. Um, and I just kind of put it in the context of prevention because they, every parent, um, that has ever given me any pushback is relating it to sex and they assume that their child is never going to do that. And we pray that they don't do it, but most young adolescents get exposed to HPV between the ages of 18 and 25, which is when they're far out of your reach and your influence. So if we get the vaccine early, we can hopefully prevent, um, those, um, forms of cancers when they're in their 40s and 50s when they come see you. So I talk about it in terms of prevention and start early to just, you know, like every other vaccine. And there's also um, a small benefit to actually starting a little earlier now. Um, when it first came out, it was required to have three doses. Now, if you initiate the HPV vaccine series before the age of 15, you only have to have two doses and that is considered completely uh-huh. immunized. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We know that your immune system is, is better when you're younger. So when you're younger and you get it early, you kind of mount an immune response that kind of gives you more protection. So mm-hmm. um, that's the other reason we recommend it. So give us give us the window, Kirsten. You want to get it. You want to initiate your HPV vaccine series before the age of 15. If you turn 15 or your daughter turns 15, she will get three shots. How young can they be? How, how They have to nine. be at least what age? At least nine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So on average, are y'all giving the HPV vaccine at nine or, or when are you really, mm-hmm. when are you seeing most patients get it? I would say that most of my patients, the conversation has probably started nine or 10. Um, and then I tried to make it that it's like 12. Because they've done usually their Benvio and Tdap to get ready for seventh grade, and like myself, I don't like shots sometimes, but I know the importance of our immunizations. So I absolutely, we're all in our office very pro vaccine. Um, so yeah, I would say by oh, 12, mm-hmm. 13, um, especially now with the notion that you just need six months apart, and you can come in as a immunization wow, only visit and just get your second one. So that's great. And so, also by twelve, we you've usually and should have had some type of talk with your child about sex. And so we do explain completely by the age exactly what and why we're covering you for, how, you know, you could contract HPV. And the that way your patient is able to understand exactly what we're doing in totality. It's the only vaccine we have to prevent cancer right now. How cool mm-hmm. is that? Right. You know? yeah. So it's very important. Right. 
we, you know, as a resident, we are training on women who have cervical dysplasia, which mm-hmm. is the precancerous form of cervical cancer. So what they're seeing is that because of the HPV vaccine, the residents don't have as many patients to do colposcopies and to do procedures to get rid of these Mm -hmm. cells. So it is very, very effective. And I really feel like it's a missed opportunity Mm -hmm. um, that, again, going back to sex and fear and, you know, that we miss that opportunity to protect our children from from cancer. The other part of that, too, is that there was a statistic like several years ago about actually sexual activity, although with the pandemic, those numbers have shifted again a little bit. But um, that the age and initiation of sexual activity actually decreased. Um, I actually, in our household, we're very open. I showed my children from a young age about the body parts, just took it very basic. And so you can show a child, you know, the warts. They're very narcissistic, <laughs> developmentally appropriate. <laughs> and they're like, whatever you give me to not get that, that's what I want. So we definitely gotcha. talk about abstinence, definitely. But they're exactly right. Um, you know, a lot of parents just have this myth in their head that if I allow this and it deals with sex, they're going to start having sex. Um, and actually we find a lot is was shifting away from that. They felt more informed and they didn't want to be getting started in something that you could contract. This. So just the education, just talking about it will Absolutely. actually decrease the age of the, the first time they have sex. It had those, that's, that was what the numbers were showing okay. since the initiation of the, even the first HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. Y'all may not have this statistic, but what's the average age of the first sexual encounter? That I don't know. I don't know that specifically. Okay. That would be interesting. That would be interesting, yeah. Um, the youngest patient I've ever had to have that we've talked about it and that, you know, it's it's been 11 or 12. That's yes. Been, that's it's mine shocking. Too. You Me know? too. So, Do and you, it was consensual. So when... And, and this may be an assumption, but at 11 or 12 and they're having sex, mm-hmm. do, can you assume that maybe there's been, well, at least some uh, some introduction to yes. sex and maybe even a history trauma. of sexual abuse or yes. trauma? Usually. Mm-hmm. Usually. And Usually. even just being careful about who your children socialize with because um, and your introduction to sex or their introduction to sex may be in their friend, their best friend's room and they're pulling up and scrolling through certain sites on the internet and access to social media and you know really making sure you know what they're watching and okay (laughs) okay so yeah so let's talk about social media what should we do as parents especially we're in a pandemic and the kids can't go anywhere Mm -hmm. you know which how should we manage their social media should we take their phones away at a certain time like you know, I want all of y'all to kind of weigh in on this. How do we manage the social media of our children so that it's not harmfully affecting them? It's hard because they're very good at having separate accounts. And um, it, there's a rule in my house. If I can't understand how it works, you can't have it. So my daughter doesn't have <laughs> Snapchat because I don't understand how it works. Um, and we take her phone and we periodically, when she doesn't know, we look through it. Um, there, we block certain apps and there's a time limit where she can't be on it. Um, and you know, we, we monitor it and we do it when she doesn't know. And so they're, they're very good at hiding what they don't want you to find out. And so were we, when we were 13, it's just now they have social media. So we, we monitor it very closely, um, and I feel like you have to. You have to know what they're looking at, what they're 
um, what sites they're on, um, and what friends, you know, they're, if they're at someone's house and they're on Snapchat and then your child is on it too. I mean, they're very creative, um, and they're smarter than us <laughs> in terms of social media. <laughs> mm-hmm, definitely. Um, that's the problem. So, um, I think just making sure you are checking in and, um, and you want to give your child some privacy and some freedom, but at 12, 13, and 14, they don't really understand what to do with that. Right. Um, exactly. And they have exactly. access to things that we obviously didn't have access to, instantaneous access, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I think has also been a problem. But you just have to check in. You just have to, you know, be kind of strict about it, you know. The other, and the other thing I would just add on just total segue right after that is that you have to teach them this is supposed to have been a tool and how to navigate it. So sometimes parents think, well, I'll just take everything away, right? And just like you said, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have to allow them some sort of socialization. Um, but I think just sort of you can do, I always call it like life lesson moments. This is about your, protecting you, protecting your health, your mental well-being, um, having respect for yourself. And one of the things I started to tell my children very early is, I'm all, I love you 365, 24-7, but if you put something out there, we can't pull it back. Right. And that's the hard, right. that's the hard thing. Schools have gotten so much better. There's so many different programs. I know my children's school does BARC, and there's a lot of different programs that teach about safety. So children are hearing about it, but just like Tasha said, and I know, Kirsten, you know this too, they find workarounds all the time. Absolutely. They can show you how to get something for free on your phone. (laughs) So I think just kind of, you know, all of the kind of common theme today is just sort of preparing and teaching them how to navigate I usually tell patients this and I usually can get them to chuckle when, you know, I say, if you smell something, see something or hear something, because usually if you say smell, they're like, what? And they at least kind of, you know, clue in a little bit more. You let, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's all I, that's all we need. You let a teacher know, you always let your parents know. And that sometimes has been helpful. Um, And just besides those things, the social media, there's these games out there. There's various ones. Um, that can really be warped into sexualized games oh, and wow. very inappropriate scenery. Um, and that's another big thing. I think always, again, staying involved, staying open, um, and set the rules up. There are phone contracts. You can make any contract you want in your home, but it's teaching responsibility instead of mm being nosy or thinking your parent just doesn't trust you there's a lot of predators out there on these things predator yes you have any thoughts about social media kirsten um well i actually have a 23 year old daughter and she actually went all the way throughout high school with no social media i just was yeah i was just really a hard nose about it i can't really say where it came from i think it really came from wanting to protect her more than anything because she was going through high school during that age of when the likes and the like button ah, came about yes. and we were seeing just the incredible effect of what other people's opinions mm. was having on young people. Mm. And I just, I didn't want to deal with that. I didn't want to have to be the mom. Like, why is your daughter talking, you know, right. crap about my daughter? And right. I, I just didn't want to deal with it. <laughs> so I, maybe I did it more for me than her, but um, I can say that she went through high school just fine without Facebook, without Snapchat. Um, she did get it, of course, when she got to college, which was fine. She was an adult by then. Mm-hmm. But I will say also that I also have boys that are seven and five, and I don't think the rule will be the same for them because right. it has become such an integral part 
of actually socializing. They don't talk to each other on those phones no. that you buy. They don't make phone calls. No. Well, what we learned through sports, having a comp- uh, two children who play sports competitively, coaches look at you through your social media and your Instagram. So you have oh, to wow. be connected, which I think is silly, but... You know, coaches, when you get to a certain level, will start to follow you not only through tournaments, but just through your social media. And so a lot of kids feel pressure to get things. I mean, I think they get it because they want it for their their friends have it. But um, I didn't realize that that was such a big deal in terms of competitive sports now. Um, Having an Instagram page for Mm -hmm. your, you know. And the teachers will even communicate. Like, all of a sudden, there's a change. And I've had patients tell me, and I feel like Raquel has experienced this. There were basketball practice is now at eight. Well, the teacher only put it on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook and Instagram? Never, no phone calls, you know, no reaching out to the parents. And so kids miss out on a basketball practice because they didn't have social media. So even if we wanted to shield our children Mm -hmm. from social media, there are social aspects that we have Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. kind of adhere to. Okay. Mm. This is a lot. Uh, part so, two coming soon. Part two, <laughs> we gotta get and into it because I, I want to hear more about the games. Well, we won't talk about it now, but the games that are masquerading as games that actually morph into something else that's harmful. Um, but going back to social media and what you said, our kids don't talk. You know, they don't connect. You know, physically. Sure. We have started to see that kids are in front of screens more. And not out playing, not doing, you know, activity, having physical activity. So childhood obesity is a big topic. Michelle Obama even made it her platform, which was wonderful. Uh, How do we, or can you give us some tips about, you know, how we can prevent our children from becoming obese before they're even out of middle school? You you've you put it really in a nutshell there, Renita. It is. It is an, an huge topic. We have continued to see obesity rise in children in the United States um over the last two years. There's a whole federal initiative, yes, that Michelle Obama is a big part had been a big part of and still is a big part of. I know in growing up um as an African American female with family members that are from the South, and it doesn't matter, I grew up in the North. Um, there's a lot that I think historically for different cultures, not just the African-American culture that is surrounded with food and celebration and affirmation and culture. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot to tell people, like I know telling people to take the ham hocks out the greens, like (laughs) that almost started a war at Thanksgiving when I was growing up. I myself, and I'll just start here and go quickly into the other things, is I I grew up and I was overweight. I was very active, but I was overweight. I had the grandparents that, you know, they put a half bag in the Kool-Aid and, Mm. you know, they love on you and everything. So a lot there, this is why this topic gets sometimes so sticky and feels very personal and sometimes why parents also feel personally attacked. Um... And I would say for our, if we're really steering things a little bit even more towards young girls, there's a lot of issue of what uh, an attractive body type is. And -hmm. just on the heels of the conversation of social media, you can kind of find what you're looking for, okay, in the way of what is beautiful, right? So we have some families who would feel like probably what we might be saying is overweight or obese is attractive. And actually normal weight is scrawny or skinny, um, or not healthy. So I think this kind of comes back again to sort of how we look at mental health. 
Um, obesity has to be something that starts at home in the way of not ha- letting it happen and not feeling personally offended and realizing its health impacts down the road for our children. So making sure, and this can get into another topic that would be like a part three and four <laughs> of, you know, access to healthy foods. And in a lot of homes, right. that's not always easy. Um, teaching parents how to, um, you know, shop on the dime um, and be healthy still. And um, we have advertising that really doesn't talk about that as much unless you watch maybe public TV <laughs> or something like that. Um, so having access to healthier choices, not having as many processed snacks and sugary foods in the home. But most of the times I think everyone around this table has run into but I like those snacks. The parent right. likes that snack. And <laughs> even though, you know, he's big, what about, you know, his brother's not? And so why can't we have that? So there's a lot of re-education, even for myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I started probably mm-hmm. when I was like 13 years old to go, this is probably not the healthiest for me. So the world, the word well-being, I think, is probably what comes to the center. Um, and then as providers, teachers, we have to be careful of our words because sometimes people are looking at us. People look up to us. They're looking at you. Um, and I've had some people say if they're with a provider who's a little smaller or much smaller than them, but probably healthy, they're like, how can you tell me how to live my life? Um, so we have to kind of really be careful how we broach this subject. I feel sometimes in the office, I have found that for for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think being a person who just kind of really likes to want to be on being healthy and exercising, eating well, um, you can do that sincerely. So starting at home, making sure, again, we drop our baggage about weight and just talk about being healthy and fit and not just keying into numbers all the time. Um, I think that's that's a really important way, making it a family affair. So the podcast, my podcast, is dedicated to women's health. So if if the moms are healthy. If the dads are healthy, we can model good behavior for our children. Absolutely. So I'm just going to wrap this up. We are, like I said, we're in a pandemic. And, you know, when we were talking about the things that are really most pressing to kids, it's really, there's, I guess, pre-COVID and post-COVID. And even though this is 2021, I'm sure that there'll still be some impact of what happened during the pandemic um, and how that affected our children. So Jess, I'm going to just go around the table. Give me the top three things that you think are the most pressing or have impacted our children the most during the COVID pandemic. Yes, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, so the two, the two things, because this is, we've been talking about this too, mm-hmm. was um, the sense of racism has now been identified as a health issue um, since this time of 2020, the whole year. Um and certainly um, the issue of learning disabilities in education. Right. Um, the American right. Academy of Pediatrics has actually just, for, they're formulating actual diagnosis and, um, to cover all these topics. So that's a different whole mindset for us to be um, thinking. And I was telling them about a quote I found from the AAP, which was basically saying that um, racism, and this was, I don't know exactly who from the AAP said it, um, racism is a socially transmitted disease passed down through generations. Ooh. So I just wanted to kind of... STD. 
It's protected. <laughs> it's commu- it's, and you like think that. about it, it's communicable. Wow. Right? Um, wow. So that's where a lot of policies are kind of coming in. But I don't want to just kind of, I know that's not kind of the typical when we think of health issues, but we're moving Absolutely, in a whole though. different direction. Yeah. So you said racism and Edu- like in educational. educational like disparity is definitely a huge issue. Yeah, absolutely. Next, um, I would say that anxiety, of course, has been at the forefront of mm-hmm. a lot of our patient visits. And for me, I've seen both. I've seen heightened anxiety, of course, you know, feeling stressed about grades, having to do virtual learning, not understanding, not having complete access to their teachers. Right. Um, anxiety about my mother has. Um, comorbidities, they're understanding what it means for their parents to be sick and how am I going to make my mom sick, you know, worrying about things like that. But also the anxiety has actually, for some kids, improved. So those Mm -hmm. children who were being bullied daily, every day that they went to school or had to worry about how they were going to be treated every day, they've actually improved. And so now some of them don't want to go back to school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that is something I have had many conversations about with parents and getting them to truly understand the toll of what they were going going through on a day-to-day basis was doing to them. The pandemic has really brought that to light for them. Anxiety. Okay. I would say um, obesity actually, I think has gotten worse based on what I'm seeing. Um, kids are not as active. You know, the, their sports that they would do in school or outside of school have been canceled. Um, I have a lot of parents who are working in the home and so they just kind of leave food out because they're working. Kids are, you know, sitting in front of their computer screen uh, for eight hours. Yeah. Um, and so they're kind of eating whatever. Um, and so I've had a lot of kids come in and we joke and say they've gained the COVID-19. Um, and so I think obesity has gotten significantly mm-hmm. worse during this pandemic. Um, and uh, people can't go anywhere. You know, right. some people in the beginning were trying to go to parks. and But as it's gotten cold, um, at least in this part of the country, it's, People aren't getting out and they really are just eating whatever. And people honestly are just trying to get through their, you know, their stress, the anxiety is high. Parents mm-hmm. are working from home, mm-hmm. working more from home. Um, and kids are in front of a screen for eight hours. Um, so I think obesity for me has gotten a lot worse during the pandemic. Um, you know, that's true for adults, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Absolutely. laughs> yeah. An adult sitting at the table, um, <laughs> if we're being honest. So I, you know, you guys do this every day, but, you know, even as a physician, as a parent, this is very, very, um, this has been very helpful. Uh, you've said things that I didn't even think about that I didn't even know about. So, um, you know, I hope you guys can come back, you know, periodically and we can talk about some of these things. Um, because, you know, part of some of our stressors as women is our children and sure. making sure that we do a good job and, you know, we get it right. And so there's just so many things that we don't know. So just for our listeners, I wanted to make sure that we know what the AAP is. It is the American Academy of Pediatrics. And Dr. Tanuzi gave us some good information that um, that came from them. So if you are interested in learning more about pediatrics, um, you can go to the American Academy of Pediatrics. I would just like to thank you all for being here today. Again, we have Dr. Tasha Dow, Kirsten Goolsby, physician's assistant, and Dr. Raquel Tanuzi. They all work at Wake Forest Pediatrics in High Point, 
And the office is taking new patients. So again, guys, they take care of my children. I can't say enough great things about their practice. Uh, You will be in great hands. So thank you all for listening. And we will see you back next time. Thank you for listening to Office Visits with Dr. V. My prayer is that something said on this podcast will get you started on a path to your optimal health and wellness. The information, including opinions and recommendations discussed in this podcast, is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Such information is not intended to be a substitute for the advice of a qualified and licensed physician or other healthcare provider. Although I'm a doctor, this does not replace the advice of your licensed physician or healthcare provider. So please, Seek the advice of a qualified healthcare professional before making any changes to your healthcare regimen. And another thing, just by listening to this podcast doesn't make me your doctor. However, if you want to stay connected, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Office Visits with Dr. V. And go to my website at OfficeVisitsWithDrV.com. That's OfficeVisitsWithDrV.com. Let's follow up next time. Blessings.